Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. In this episode, two recovered alcoholics break down one chapter of the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous line by line. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com. Thank you for listening. Here, Thank you, Kat, and you guys for asking um, us to talk about the big book, which is one of my favorite things in the world. So today we're going to talk about the doctor's opinion. And Laura and I talked last night, and Laura um, and I are going to split it up. So um, I'm going to get right into it because there's some pages that are really kick button here, and we have um, want to spend some time talking about it. So um, the doctor's opinion was written by William Duncan Silkworth, and he was one of um, the physicians at Town Hospital where Bill went to stay, and um, several times, like three and a half times, I think. And he had a very um, important role in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially in the early years, he was an alcoholic, but he came to work with thousands and thousands of men and women who came through Towns Hospital in New York City during the Great Depression, and he formed this alcoholism. And it was important to Bill Will that he asked um, Bill, Dr. Silkworth, to write for the foreword to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore of the doctor's opinion. So, the doctor's opinion. I'm going to read through it, and um, here we go. The doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate at the plan of recovery described. Testimony will surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So cool. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, um, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families, and this man has, and this man over 100 others have appeared to recover. Um, one is hopeless. He had regarded, Dr. Silkworth had regarded Bill Wilson, this is about Bill Wilson, as, which is a good thing. Normally in diseases, hopeless is not really a good thing. Like stage four cancer is not something that's hopeful. Stage four alcoholism is hopeful because the the desperate, more desperate we are, the more desperate we are for a solution. And it's going to, we become teachable and open-minded to drivers. The other thing that was really cool in this part of this paragraph, some of the words is that he commenced to present as a part of his rehabilitation. It wasn't um, a result of it. It was a part rehabilitation that he impressed upon other these conceptions to other alcoholics which I think is really cool it's very specific in the very beginning of AA that this is, has to be a part of our rehabilitation I personally know scores of cases who are the type of whom other methods have failed completely these facts appear to be the extreme um, extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities 
of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men have well have uh, well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You can may you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth. A couple of really cool things in there before I get into the body of the um, the chapter. Um, you may rely absolutely. So this is a medical doctor saying that we can rely absolutely on what these first 100 were saying about themselves. It's a very important note there that he says about themselves. Like, I'm going to tell you what happened to me. I'm not going to tell you what you should do. Like Silkworth said it specifically. They're not going to tell you what you should do or um, diagnose you, but they're going to tell you about themselves, which is a really interesting and very cool note there that he said that's kind of buried in there. All right. The physician who at our request gave us this letter and has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we have who has suffered alcoholic torture must believe um, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. All right. So that's really cool there. I've got to believe. I must believe it. It doesn't matter if everybody else believes it around me, if, if my husband or my family or um, if my work or anybody else believes I'm an alcoholic. I am the one who must believe that I've suffered alcoholic torture and that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as my mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent for some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. In the fourth to the first edition, um, Bill Wilson, the first 100, masterfully tell us that alcoholism is two parts, body and mind. So here, Silkworth is starting to address the body part, the physical allergy, the control part of um, what alcoholism is in step one. And I love it because he says here that it's not just that we couldn't control our drinking because we were maladjusted to life or a behavior problem or a personality defect, that we were in full flight or reality or we were mental defectives. They're true to a certain extent, you know, because everybody's got something going on in their lives. But um, he, he thinks that this physical factor has nothing to do with anything that's outside of our bodies. So he makes that very clear here in this paragraph. I love this. Okay. The, doctor, the, pen, the doctor's theory that we have an allergy. So this is the first time that allergy is mentioned in relationship to alcoholism. Um, it's never, the correlation has never been made before, before Dr. Silkworth. And so it's really important to note that because, um, allergy is a very confusing word when we're talking about, um, because of all of our preconceptions of what an allergy is. So it's really important as he gets into the explanation of what exactly this allergy is. As laymen, our opinions to it as soundness, uh, to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Um, that we work out our solutions on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. 
Okay. Altruistic is a really another important word. It's like all these word um, choices are beautiful, but altruistic means that we're going to be helping others. Others are, will be helped. And so altruistic means I'm doing outside of self. I get no um, benefit from it. Um, I do it because that is what I'm compelled to do. I love that he didn't get paid for it. More often, more often than not, it's imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached. Um, as he has a better chance of understanding, accepting what we have to offer. Don't talk to a drunk person on the phone. It has to be clear. Our minds have to be clear before we're approached. So many times when I was first sober, I would spend hours talking to a woman who was drunk. And then I would talk to them the next day and they would tell me that I hadn't talked to them. Like they wouldn't even remember talking to me. So I thought I was doing all this great work. And they were in a blackout. So make sure that the person that you're speaking to is lucid and if they're going to remember what you're talking to them about. I thought I was doing such great work. Oh my God. Anyway, the doctor writes, the subject presented, so this is back to so forth. The subject presented in this book seems to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experienced as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. Therefore, there was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on the subject, which is covered in masterfully detail in these pages. So this gives us huge street credibility from Silkworth that a physician who nobody wanted to work with alcoholics back then, still a lot don't today, but that he would tell um that he tell the world that he did not have the solution as a medical doctor. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of doctors and there's a lot of ego there for this doctor to admit that he didn't have the solution, that he had tried all these solutions and he didn't have it. Um, a is very humbling on his part that you want to believe him more because he's humble about it. But also it gives us street credibility. We as Alcoholics Anonymous, when they were, we as alcoholics, when we were, they were writing this book, needed someone to give us some credibility so that people would look at this book and believe what they were saying and give it a second look and try um, some of the suggestions in here. So Dr. Silkworth did that for us in the very beginning, which is very cool. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics. But its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside of our synthetic knowledge. That's awesome. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas he put into practical application. Um. So what he's not talking about, the physical part, he's talking about the spiritual part of this. The practical application is there's the spiritual principles have been around for millennia. I mean, literally thousands of years. What this book does is it teaches us how to put these spiritual principles in practical application. So the practical application, he's not talking about the allergy or the, the mental part. He's literally talking about the solution, coming back into these hospitals, carrying the message, putting these practical um, spiritual principles into, um, into a solution that works. It's really cool how it's not that we invented spiritual principles or that we were the first to talk about spiritual. We, this book shows us and lays it out how to get into the application 
of those spiritual principles. I love it. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. We always have to remember when we're going into these hospitals that it's a privilege. It's a complete privilege to be in these places where these patients and clients are and that we don't get to tell hospitals and absorb how to run their businesses. It's a privilege to be there, period. Um, I've been asked to leave several places where I've carried the message because I've started trying to tell the doctors how they should um, talk about alcoholism. And that's not my place. I actually got met at the, my car one time. They knocked on the window and told me not to come in because I was, um, I call it, uh, um, I was just obstinate and know-it-all. And it's literally like a rookie mistake. Like, I'm going to go in and tell this hospital that's been around for 100 years how to run their business. It's, just, please don't do that. Yeah, it's a privilege for us to be there. The cases we have followed through the most interesting, in fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, which is the altruism, that's what we were talking about before on the previous page, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more important, more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholism alcoholics back from the gates of death. All right, so here's where we go with the really important stuff with the physical part. We have a two-part-ish part problem, and Silkworth really just masterfully talks about the physical part, which we're going to get into right now. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. This often requires a definite hospital procedure before psych- psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. When he's talking about hospital procedure, he's not talking about 30 days. He's talking about three days of detox so that we can get the alcohol out of our system so our minds are cleared to start to do the steps, the work. All right. Here's the famous paragraph about um, the allergy and about the physical craving. So Silkworth writes, We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. All right, so much to unpack there. When I'm talking about the physical part, the body part of this illness, I, this is like the go-to page. Like every step has a page number. And for me, this is this, the page that specifically talks about the body part. Um, written by a person who's not even an alcoholic, which gives it more street cred because the physical part is a, it it makes sense it's written by a medical doctor. All right, Um, let's look at this. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. First time that it's talked about allergy in relationship to alcoholism, which is really cool because all an allergy is, very simply by Webster's Dictionary, is something, an, um, an abnormal reaction, something that we put in or on our body. And I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. And here's my abnormal reaction to all alcohol. 
is the phenomenon of craving. It's limited to this class, the class of the chronic alcoholic, on and on and on. And the other really important part of this sentence is that it never occurs in the average temperate drinker. It never occurs. So when I put alcohol, I have the inability to stop abruptly. It's not that um, I drink in the morning or I drink vodka or, I drink, or it's not that I drink 20 vodka or two glasses of wine. It's literally the fact that once I start, I can't stop abruptly. It has nothing to do with how or when. It has to do with once I put it in my body, ability to stop abruptly. My best friend and I in a bar, we drink exactly, we wouldn't even know the difference. We drink exactly alike. The difference is not in how we drink, it's how we quit. So she can stop once she puts alcohol in her body and say, you know what? The wine, I'm done. I hit my limit. I'm just getting started. Oh, let's talk. Let's stay up and talk. I have so much. We need, come on, stay up with me. Let's play a game or whatever. I literally can't stop. And then when my friends aren't going to drink with me anymore, that's when I start retreating to my closet and I'm going to drink by myself because I want to drink the way I want to drink. And I think that in the middle of all of that, I'm just changing my mind. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have drink number three or drink number four. But once I put it in my body, it's not my mind. You can chop my head off and throw it down the road. It's a physical reaction that takes place that I cannot control. I have a physical reaction to penicillin and it literally, my throat closes and I, it is horrible. When I take penicillin, I can't stop that reaction by willing it away. So when I put alcohol in my system, I can't stop the reaction of the inability to stop drinking it just because I changed, my mind has nothing to do with this physical phenomenon. And that's exactly what Silkworth is saying here. But that phenomenon never occurs in a, an abuser or a hard drinker or someone who drinks a couple of glasses of wine. It never. So if it happens one time, I'm going to call my numbers stone cold sober and I over drink, then I might have to look at that because that is the qualifier. It never occurs in the average temper drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. NyQuil, vanilla extract, any form at all. Kombucha. I got that old familiar feeling one time when I was at the store and bought kombucha because it was like the thing that everybody was drinking had no idea it had fermented seeds in it. And I remember drinking it going, oh shit. Oh, ooh. And I looked at it, you guys, and it had alcohol in it. Like it was fermented alcohol. So you have to look at the labels. I thought I'd relapsed. Anyway. Um, all right. And found, and once having formed the habit and found that you cannot break it, once having lost your self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, huge, huge statement in there, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. You notice how it doesn't say problems and therefore I drink. It says the way I drink causes these problems. That's like the experience that we have. The way I drank and I was a blackout drunk 
created all of these experiences where I could then help other alcoholic women with it afterward, for sure. But I didn't drink because of my problems. My drinking caused a lot of problems. But the cool thing is um, that it, 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 it turns out to be the best thing that's ever happened to me. That experience and the things that I did um, when I was blacked out actually turns out to be um, the, the, the very thing that, that, the experience that, help, that gets me to help other alcoholics. And I love that because the thing that I thought caused the most shame and the, the thing that I was never going to talk to my family members about was the thing that we didn't discuss is actually turned into our greatest asset, not just for me, but for my entire family too. And that's the coolest thing is because you think that, or I thought that I was never going to get out of the hole that I had made by this alcoholic phenomenon, this inability to control and go into a blackout, but it actually has turned into, um, with the help of a sponsor in this book and God, this, this, this prayer life has turned into the best, um, thing that ever happened to me and my family, actually. The one thing I want to end on here is, um, I always thought that my negative reaction to the way I drank was blacking out. I always thought that blacking out was the, the worst thing that happened once I started drinking. But what this paragraph is telling me is the worst thing that the negative reaction for my drinking is the inability to stop. Some people black out, some people don't. But what we all have in common as alcoholic and alcoholic women is that we have the inability to stop. We can't focus on the blackout. We can't focus on the, the consequences once we start drinking, what we can focus on. So there's a common problem that we all have is this inability to stop um, once we start. And if we can focus on that and not focus on the blackout or this or that, then we're all going to be able to have um, a road to the common solution too. So that's all I have. I think Laura's going to take over um, it for all the emotional appeal. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Um, hey, I'm Laura. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic, and my date of sobriety is September 23rd of 2019. Um, okay, so frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Uh, logical reasoning, people just saying, you know, just stop drinking. That that never worked for me. Um, the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight, and there's that that must again. Um, it has to have some sort of you know, can ground us in that. In nearly all cases, their ideas must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So again, this isn't going to be for me. I'm not going to look in, into myself for change. Um, I've got to have that faith in that higher power to restore my sanity around alcohol. If we feel, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than an altruistic movement now growing among them. Um, yeah. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I feel like that is just like the most like 
of course, like, duh, <laughs> like moment in this book. Um, I mean, of course, I love that that warm feeling, that warm fuzzies that you start getting as soon as you put it in. Um, you know, I liked that when I was socially lubricated, I didn't have that social anxiety. Um, if I was angry or upset, you know, there was just that instant like sweet relief um, that came by the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Um, while I can admit that every single time I drink, I'm going to have some sort of a consequence. Um, I'm going to wreck my car. I'm going to verbally accost people. Um, you know, I always joke around that, oh, we lost our pants. You know, anytime that I drink, that there, there is going to be some sort of a consequence. Um, in my mind, I cannot differentiate the true from the false. The false is that I can handle it this time, that I'm not going to get drunk. The false is, oh, I only got drunk because I drank whiskey. If I drink vodka, then I won't get drunk. Um, the false is that I didn't eat, you know, a greasy meal before I started drinking. Um, no, the truth is that I have this allergy. Like as Lisa was talking about, I have this physical reaction to alcohol. I am going to keep drinking and drinking and drinking until I am stopped by handcuffs or passing out. Um, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And that became so, so true towards the end of it. Like, instead of, you know, normal people having coffee in the morning to wake up, you know, I'm having an alcoholic drink to stop my shakes. Or, um, you know, it just became so normal and that constant, like, oh, happy, happy hour after work. Uh, just in that cycle, that never-ending cycle, like, that became my new normal. Um, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Um, yeah, I mean, just that, that mental obsession right there with that restlessness, irritability, and discontentment. Um, you know, I would be so... I would like just work myself into a frenzy of like that, that irritability and, and restlessness and just that constant, you know, when I was at work, okay, my lunch breaks at 1130. Okay. I only have to make it two and a half hours. And then, okay, I'm just going to go stop at the seven 11 and I'm just going to get a four pack of wine. I'm only going to have two during my lunch break. And then, you know, I'll hide two more in my purse and then I'll be able to have one at this time and have one at this time. And then by then, you know, work will be done. It will be six o'clock. I can stop by a different 7-Eleven, get a different one. That will be good for my drive home. When I get home, I'll only drink this. Um, or even that mental obsession of, okay, I'm going out with friends. I'm going to go look at the menu beforehand. I'm going to figure out which drink that will be okay. Um, I'm going to figure, okay, I'm not going to have any shots. Like, that's not normal thinking. Normal people don't do that. Normal people look at a menu to see what looks good or like, oh, hey, what's popular at this restaurant? Not, not a blueprint for, or like a roadmap to how and when they're going to drink in order to not get into this blackout or to set how many numbers. Um, and drinks with which they see others taking with impunity. I I have a horrible, horrible, horrible habit of comparing myself to others, especially when it came to my alcoholism. Um, I could see everyone just, oh, they'd have a few drinks or they would kind of like 
pace it along so that they would never get drunk. And I'm like, oh, if I do that, then, then I won't get drunk this time. Then I won't black out. Um, you know, if they can do it, why can't I? And, oh, well, they have a normal life and they're drinking. It's okay. Um, after they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And how many times waking up the next day, either feeling like shit or reading through text messages or waking up next to someone you didn't mean to of that, oh my God, I'm so done. I'm never drinking again. Like if I had a dollar for every single time I said, I'm never drinking again, I probably had would have been able to pay off my lifetime of bar tabs. <laughs> like I'm never drinking again. Um, this is it this consequence happened. Like I am done. I am done. I am done. Like for reals this time, but this is repeated over and over until the person can experience an entire psychic change. There's very little hope of his recovery. Um, until I have that spiritual awakening and that spiritual awakening of that rearrangement of ideas, emotions, and attitudes, nothing's going to change. My mind is going to bring me back to that drink every single time. And as Lisa was just talking about, it doesn't matter what form of alcohol I put into my body that I will ignite that craving, which will just keep me drinking and drinking and drinking until something else stops me until I can change this crazy, crazy mind that I have. Um, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed who had so many problems he had despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary is being, being that required to follow a few simple, simple rules, um, which is just the 12 steps. Um, so anyone who just seems so screwed, so doomed, so hopeless, they can get this psychic change that they say is required um, for any hope of recovery. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Um, and again, I just, I always think of that as just like that, that firm resolution. Like, oh my gosh, like I'm so done. Like, help me, help me, help me, help me. I can't do this. Like, I need help. Um, and how many times we say that and we're really done and we really mean it and we really mean that we cannot go on, that we're just exhausted um, from that alcoholic life, from the mental obsession. I mean, it's exhausting being an alcoholic. <laughs> it really is. Um, faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. So once again, this isn't, this isn't anything that, that I can do. This isn't in self. There's literally nothing on earth with human power that I can produce this essential, like I have to have this psychic change, this whole rearrangement of my attitudes, emotions, and ideas um, to have recovery. So there's not no human power. So there's no, um, there's no legal thing that can help me. I mean, court, probation, jail, none of that made me stop. Medication didn't help me stop. Um, friends and family, I couldn't stop. There is no human power that will help me stop 
drinking alcohol and return me to sanity. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from the psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit that we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Um, I think something like out of all of the alcoholics they've treated, like at that time, there was, it was like a 2% chance of recovery. Um, I don't know, I could be wrong with that, but that sounded good. So we'll just, we'll roll with it. Um, many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men, for example, who worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink the day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving once at once became paramount to all other interests, so that the important appointment was not met. <laughs> How many times did we think, oh, I, I, have, I, I know exactly, like, I, um, I'm in property management, and right before I went into Maggie's, I, um, most of you all know, my previous uh, job, I was drunk at work, and I fell off the golf cart, so I lost that job, um, so trying to get my life back together, I, um, I had an interview with the number one property management company in the United States. Um, ended up getting the job, ended up drinking the, you know, I guess few days before I should say the weekend before. And shockingly, if you don't show up to your first day of work, they, they rescind your job offer. So how many times that, okay, I'm not going to drink. I'm ready for this. Okay. I'll just have a glass of wine to, to kind of calm my nerves. Like it will, it will help me think better. Um, my first day of work and, then not make it because I set my allergy off. You know, again, that goes back to my mind. My mind is, oh, I mean, that's true in the false. So the false is I can have one glass of wine to help me sleep so that I will be better rested for this job tomorrow. Um, the truth is, no, I have the allergy. So once I have that, what I think will just be that one glass of wine, I'm drinking two, three bottles, moving to vodka, just, you know, keep going until I, I pass out. Um, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And that right there is such an example of that powerlessness that we have towards alcohol. Um, you know, I'm not drinking because, oh, I'm, I'm nervous. You know, I, I'm, I'm nervous for this job. I'm just going to have this. It's going to help me sleep. It's because my mind is just so convincing and so, you know, just like there, there, there. And I can't, I can't do it. Like that craving is so strong that I just have to succumb to that desire. Um, there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. Um, and that's, that's the alcoholic death right there. That supreme sacrifice. The classifications of alcoholics seems most difficult and is in, and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. And that is just how many times that I say, I'm never going to drink again. I'm making this firm resolution. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done for real this time, but I'm never making a decision to do the work or to take any action. 
against that stopping drinking. I'm just saying I'm going to do it, but then I never follow through with any action um, to stop that. There's the type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. How many times <laughs> have, you know, tried these different ways of beating the game, um, planning, planning a various way of drinking. Okay. I'll only stick to white wine. I'll have a glass of water in between. I'll eat a big meal. Um, or even looking at that restaurant menu or happy hour menu and, Oh, I'm only going to have these cause it has clear alcohol in it. So it's not going to make me drunk. He changes his brand or his environment. Y'all, I moved into the middle of nowhere, Texas, like population was like less than a thousand including the cows, probably like it is the middle of nowhere. And that did not stop me drinking. I know so many people, Oh, if I move, if I'm not around it, then, then I, it will be okay. Um, or the type who believes after being entirely alcohol for a period of time can take a drink. Um, that just reminds me of, you know, the man of 30, you know, he gave up alcohol for 25 years and what happens? He drinks after 25 years, he's dead in four. Um, you know, or how many times, oh, I haven't drank in 11 days. Like I can handle it this time. Oh, it's been 30 days. I can handle it this time. No, it doesn't matter how long I'm dry for. It said specifically on the page before, unless I have an entire psychic change, I'm not going to be recovered. Um, doesn't matter where I go, how I drink, how long it's been since I drank. I cannot change my body. I will always have that allergy in the body of the alcoholic. There is nothing that will change my body. Um, that commercial for, I think it's passages, Malibu always makes me so angry every time I see him. Cause he'll be like, I was an addict, but now I'm not. It's like, no, you're always an alcoholic. Like there's nothing <laughs> that will change it. I'm always, just because I work the 12 steps and I have the spiritual um, connection and I have my sanity returned to alcohol doesn't mean I'm magically not an alcoholic now. Um, There is the manic depressive type who perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter can be written. There are the types who are entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. And all these, like many others, have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differenti differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. Um, you know, if we look at, at page 20, I believe it's page 20, when it's talking about the moderate drinker, the heavy drinker, and the alcoholic, you know, the main issue, you know, the main thing that sets apart us as alcoholics is that once we start, we cannot stop. We don't have any control over the amount that we put in our body and we have no choice. Um, that allergy, you know, I know plenty of people that maybe they were binge drinkers or hard drinkers, but their main difference is that they can stop and I cannot because I have this allergy. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately pre precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. 
Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. We are so screwed. <laughs> we are so screwed with our body and our mind. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration, so he had wet brain. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. Um, yeah, I know towards the end of it, you know, you're not... I, I, I just, I wasn't even living. I mean, I was literally only just living to drink for that next drink, when I could drink again, how I could drink again. It was just like my life was qualified and measured, I guess, from drink to drink, if that kind of makes sense. He frankly admitted and believed that for him, there was no hope, like that he was so hopeless. And I, I totally understand that hopelessness. Like there's nothing to live for but this booze. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan as outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but, they were all but their all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. So he has this hopelessness where a lot of us are when we first get into treatment or wherever we are. Um, you know, we change, we work these steps to get that change, and then we become this unrecognizable person. Um, I love it. And on page 567, the, exper the spiritual experience, you know, there's that paragraph in there that says this change has come so slowly that other people see it often before we do that we're totally unrecognizable. Um, you know, I almost wish that they, that I had taken like a selfie before I went into Maggie's and like taken a selfie when I got out. I mean, even doing the side-by-side -side pictures, like physically, I don't recognize myself. It's so weird, <clears throat> but it's not also, it's not also the, just the physical part, just the trembling, despairing, nervous wreck. Um, you know, he's brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. It's that psychic change that brings us that mental change as well. <clears throat> I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel, feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time had passed with no return to alcohol, because now he's the spiritually experienced person. He's worked the steps. He's gotten the spiritual awakening from this return to sanity and <clears throat> you know, it's a completely different person is unrecognizable. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. And again, this is, you know, I don't know if we've, we haven't really touched on this, but this disease is the only self-diagnosable disease. You know, it's on, um, um, you know, and we say, if you want to stop, if you find you cannot stop, and if you find you cannot control the amount you take, then you are probably alcoholic. And that's that two-part question. That's the body and the mind. I can't control the amount that I take, and I have no choice when it comes to drinking. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. 
Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated that he thought the treatment a waste of effort, unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. Um, and yeah, that willpower like that, that obsession is now non-existent. Um, you know, there's that willpower there that we can not think about alcohol, not obsess over it. And the fact that he's saying like, oh, you know what, this isn't going to work. This is going to be a waste of effort. Like how many times, you know, that's what the, such the importance of another alcoholic working with other alcoholics. Um, I know, when I, when I was in Maggie's, I mean, you know, always joking that, oh, we hear steps one, two, and three, 54 times in two weeks. Um, but hearing these women who, if not worse alcoholics than me, which I, you know, we were all pretty bad, but hearing these women, um, I can, I can remember my last day in Maggie's or my last weekend. And, you know, it was Harriet, it was Lisa, it was like Chloe, like all these women who, I think the least amount of sobriety time in that three-day period that these women had was like 10 years. And it went from 10 to 30, 33 years. And it was just like, holy crap. Like not only are these women not drinking, but it's like almost a lifetime. Like they have stopped in all these years. And so getting that, you know, unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, um, no one had told him, Hey, this does work. Like you will be able to do this. If you put in the work, like you will have this obsession removed. So getting that confidence from another alcoholic is huge, 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 huge. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great. We felt that his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. And we doubted even if it would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the idea contained in this book. Um, you know, and that also brings me back to um, the foreword of we hope this book proves so convincing. Um, not only convincing that <laughs> I am a alcoholic. Like, I, I love it. Someone always says in step one, we admitted that we were powerless. And they always say, if I could rewrite the steps, it was until I could accept that I was powerless. Like, I could say I was an alcoholic, but until I truly accepted that I had the mind of the, or the body and the mind of an alcoholic, there was no hope. There was nothing. So it's like, here is this textbook. This is what's going to get me to that solution. And, you know, and tell him like, uh, the steps don't work. I don't know. No, it, the steps didn't work for me because I never worked them. I never honestly and thoroughly worked them, but I became so sold, um, you know, there's that, there's that meme going around that's like, that says sponsor, you know, highlight what you relate to in the book. And it shows them like their whole entire page is highlighted, like every word. Um, and that's what this book is. My book is so highlighted and written in and everything. Like it's, I, I obviously became very sold on it. I guess that's what I'm getting to. Um, he had not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is a as fine a specimen of manhood as one could ever, as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. Thank you for listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book Workshop. 
This recording is not associated with any AA group or AA World Services. Find out more at ladiesbigbook.com.